Now we are going to be in the uh, in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, looking at Matthew's telling of the story of Palm Sunday of the triumphal entry when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, I, I'm fairly certain I've mentioned this before, but I uh, what I love about a Sunday like this is I love the opportunity to look at a passage that we all probably know very well. We've already read this passage once this morning, but we're going to read it again, just so it's fresh in our minds. Now, when they drew, uh, this is Matthew, I don't think I gave you the reference, did I? Sorry. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It's definitely one of those passages that even if I just read through it without studying, there's about five sermons that pop right out, right? There's so much here. What we're going to look at this morning is uh, just we're going to look at one specific piece of this story. And what we really are after today is, it's a good story, it's an encouraging story, but how does it translate to our ministry today? It's it's one thing to understand how Jesus was praised and that, that this is a confirmation of his role as the Messiah, but how do we figure out what we are supposed to do in this place, in this time, in our city to worship God appropriately and, and follow him into his plan. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, when I read a story like this that I have read hundreds of times and heard told hundreds of times and I've seen puppet shows and kids' movies and everything else about it, it's helpful to walk through the story a little bit, to try and picture what was happening, to allow some questions to come up in my head about what was it really like, all right? Because as we read through the Bible, and, uh, and this is something that's so interesting when we watch uh, movie and TV adaptations of the stories in the Bible, we sometimes forget that even though details weren't included in our text, they had to be there one way or another. That all of our stories that we have in our Bibles leave out everything that isn't absolutely essential, 
right? This is not a, this is not a narrative work. When you read a piece of fiction in a story, the author does what? They describe what it smelled like, and they describe the colors, and this is what the person's garment looked like. They, they will go to great lengths to describe the way someone's hair sit and all of these things, right? We don't get that in the Bible. We get the details that are important for us to understand the truth of God's salvation. So let's take a little bit of time and put ourselves into the story. So they're coming up to Jerusalem. Jesus sends some of the disciples ahead. We're not sure what the arrangement is. Um, We know that when they get to Jerusalem, Jesus has at some point made preparations and um, organized and, and communicated with another person that they need this room to celebrate the Passover. And the disciples went and found that room. And and in this passage, we have the situation with the donkeys. We don't know if Jesus had sent ahead someone from Bethpage or met someone in one of the surrounding towns that had these donkeys and he asked if he could borrow them, or if the disciples just went and commandeered a couple of these animals. Uh, We're not sure about the details of that. But we know some of the disciples went and they got a, a mother in the young colt um, Matthew talks about having multiple donkeys. No one else does. But it also makes sense that if you had... Has anybody ever ridden an untrained horse? Do we have any? Yeah? How, how do you think... If you were riding a horse that had never been ridden before, how would you feel about riding it down the street while people, crowds, thousands of people on either side, yelled and waved things at you? Yeah. Yeah, but, but even then, I've seen, I've seen horses that were trained spook at a lot less. Uh, so, so the general understanding is that the mother probably went with them to make sure that this young, unridden donkey that Jesus was on didn't make a break for it, and then the Messiah never actually made it <laughs> into Jerusalem. Right? So that's the image. And, and again, we don't know, but I don't know how stubborn this particular donkey was. It's easy for us to picture that everything went smoothly. Perhaps it did, but there's a lot of other details there. So they're coming up to the city, and these crowds have been gathering with Jesus. And for days and for weeks, they have been marching with him. Because remember, all of these people are traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Israelites from all over the nation and even beyond the nation of Israel and other parts of the world, they are, they are making this journey to Jerusalem. And so there's all of these people walking. And there's people that probably stayed behind when they heard Jesus was coming and gathered themselves to him. And this crowd walks along with him. So they've been hearing him preach. They've been witnessing the miracles and everything that's happened up to this point. And they cry out with joy as he finally reaches Jerusalem. So Jesus is riding on these donkeys. The people are shouting, Hosanna. They're putting tree branches. They're putting coats on the road. I love that we have the palms here this Sunday morning. It's a wonderful way to put ourselves in the story, right? It's, uh, it's, it's so good to hold something that connects us to the biblical story, to feel and to touch, to make it a little bit more real. I've never seen a church that suggested this, but maybe someday we should take all of our coats off on our way into church on Palm Sunday and lay them down in the parking lot so that everyone can walk over them on their way in. 
Is that the kind of suggestion that makes some of you regret a vote you cast a couple <laughs> weeks ago? I probably won't ask you to do that. But when I think about it for myself, I think, no, I like my jacket. I don't want it to get dirty. And then I get really convicted and think I need to go put my jacket on the ground. Because I'm sure there were people there that only had one coat and it had a, you know, after a donkey walking over it, maybe it got... But that's not the sermon today. Yeah. That's not the sermon today. What we're going to look at today is a little less to do with Jesus' messiahship. What we're going to look at today is the crowd and the impact that they had. You see, a story that I've heard my whole life, and I'm sure sometimes it was told this way, and I'm sure sometimes I only heard it this way, but as I think, think back to the years of Palm Sunday services I've been at and attended and even preached myself, I'm reminded of this common narrative. And this narrative was broken down for me a bit this week. The narrative I remember hearing is that on Palm Sunday, Jesus walked into the city, the donkey walked, Jesus rode into the city, and there's the crowds all around him. And they're shouting, Hosanna. They're saying, blessed is he who comes, all of this praise, all of this adoration. And just a few days later, this is how I remember it, that same crowd shouted, crucify him. Anybody else with me there? That, that, that feels natural, right? Well, even now as I say that, it feels natural to say, and that same crowd it feels natural to stand up here and say, remember, as you hold those palms, as you put yourself into the, the footsteps, into the, the place of those people cheering Hosanna, remember those were the same people that shouted, crucify him. I also have it in my head that the entire city went out to welcome Jesus in. And that's actually not the case, right? If you read it, um, it said, the disciples went and did as Jesus said, they brought their cloaks, he sat on them, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, etc., etc. And these are the same crowds that we've been hearing about and reading about for the last few chapters, really the whole gospel of Matthew. Right? So this crowd, I always pictured it as people came out from the city to welcome Jesus in, but the text is very clear that the crowds were following him they had been with him and it's 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 definite when we get to verse 10 and it says and when he entered jerusalem the whole city was stirred up and they said who is this and so it's clear that there are two groups of people on palm sunday we have the crowds or the crowd that's been following jesus been hearing him preach, been watching him perform miracles and signs, being healed themselves. And then we have the whole city of Jerusalem. The crowds are worshiping and praising and yelling and destroying public property. And then there's those in the city. It's two separate groups of people. Now, I don't know what happens throughout the next week and in the lives and in the hearts and the minds and the attitudes of all those people. I can't say for sure one way or another. I don't have the attendance 
roster, right? If they had had a Phyllis back then, then maybe I would. And she's already been wonderful at getting me all sorts of information that I need about who's doing what in our church and when. But we don't have that. I don't have the rosters. I don't know who was here or there. But what we do know is that on Palm Sunday, there were two separate crowds. And one of those, not only did they worship Jesus, but they impacted the other group of people. And so I believe it's fair to say, because there's really nothing to contradict this, that the majority of the crowd that shouted crucify him had nothing to do with what happened and what we celebrate today. Because the reality is, the Bible is clear that that crowd was stirred up, encouraged, and manipulated by the Pharisees and teachers of the law. We know that the crowds that followed Jesus heard him contradict those Pharisees and teachers of the law many times. If they were going to turn on Jesus in favor of the Pharisees, they probably would have done it. I'm not going to go any farther with that, because I don't know for sure. That's just what I'm, that's what I read. So we have two crowds. One crowd, not necessarily fickle, as we may have come to believe, not not necessarily shallow in their worship, not quick to turn away from Jesus, necessarily, just worshiping. It's also interesting to note that they don't even quite get it, but their worship still has an impact, right? Because when they're asked, the whole city was stirred up and they say, who is this? Now that question, of course, they're not looking for for the the name, necessarily. They probably know, they've heard of Jesus, right? Jesus has already been to Jerusalem twice. Word about him had spread through all Israel. They knew the name of him. That who is this was more of a bewilderment, more of a, a wonder, a we don't understand how one man can have this much of an impact. But look what the crowds respond to that question. They don't say, this is the coming Messiah, even though that's what he was. They say, this is the prophet Jesus from the backwater, smelly, disrespected town of Nazareth. Not about you, but that little piece there gives me a little bit of hope. Because I'm, I'm fairly certain that most Sunday mornings, you stealing my water? Sure, take it. Most Sunday mornings, I don't know that I have the fullness of his goodness in in my head and in my heart. Most Sundays when I worship or any other day of the week, I don't know that my songs and my words fully capture all of the goodness of who he is. And we can use that as a way to maybe look down at the crowd or, thanks bud, hey, Maybe use that to point to them not really being fully invested in this ministry, but the word doesn't say anything about that. The word doesn't say anything about Jesus being disappointed that they didn't yet understand that he was the Messiah. He didn't criticize their worship. He just received it. Now here's where things really get interesting. In verse 10, it says this, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was, what does your Bible say? Stirred. 
you have anybody has a Bible that doesn't say stirred? In an uproar. Is that one of those? Is that NLT? Was it NLT? I knew that. I have all the Bible translations memorized. I don't know if I mentioned that. Just a lucky guess. If you look back at the Greek, the word here for stirred, stirred is really way too timid of a translation. The word that's used here for stirred is the same word that is used to describe earthquakes. Throughout the Gospels, this is the word that describes what happened when Jesus died and the temple veil was torn in two. It is the literal shaking of the ground. Earthquake. Violent upheaval. Now, I've grown up in New England, so I haven't really been through too many earthquakes, and I don't think I've been through any earthquakes that I noticed happening. But what's so terrifying about an earthquake is that the ground is sort of that one thing we can always count on, right? Has anybody ever been on a a cruise or maybe like a whale watching tour and not done so well with it? Anybody? Yeah? How good did it feel when you got off that boat and set foot on the beach? Pretty good, right? Because you went from this boat on the sea that was moving and all over the place and you get on the ground and what it's solid you know what to expect when you go to take a step it's not going to be higher or lower than you expect it to be it's not going to drop out from under you it's constant you know what to expect and the problem with an earthquake is there's nowhere you can go right tornado hurricane Anything else, there's somewhere you can go. Typically, underground. But in an earthquake, you can't get away from it. That which is, in every other moment of your life, predictable and solid, is shaken. So when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, that's the language that we got. Not that they were curious. Not that they were having little discussions. It's not that all the philosophers went to all the cafes and ordered their cappuccinos and had a discussion about what this might mean. It wasn't in... in, They didn't have cappuccinos back then. Nobody laughed, so I figured I'd... Thanks. It it wasn't... Because we have those sorts of stirrings, right? Something... Somebody... In, in a popular culture or so someone famous does something unexpected and we talk about it and we send messages about it. and It's not that kind of a stirring. The very heart, the bedrock of the city was shaken. And it's when things are shaken that things can change. On an earthquake, that's typically not a good thing, right? But that's where we get mountain ranges, most of them, right? The earth quakes and it moves and it shifts and new things come about. There are countless things in our lives that we need to mix up in order to change them, right? Things need to get tossed up a little bit before they can be put back into place. And that's what happens. 
How many people have you known, whether yourself, I'm sure we've got testimonies in here. How many people come to faith after something in their life is taken away? Especially something that was a rock. How many people come to faith or even come to a new level in your faith as a believer when you've lost a parent? Right? Losing a parent is an earthquake in your life. That's something that you hopefully have counted on, that they have been steadfast, that they have been there for you. Every single moment of your life, you've had them there, and then that's taken away. But that also becomes a catalyst for change in your life. That's this shaken. And we know, because we know the rest of the story, that over the course of the next seven days, change indeed did come to Jerusalem. And not only the city, but the whole world through it. The sort of change that I believe I can say we would all love to see in our communities. At least change of that magnitude, right? We want God to work in our church, in our communities. We all have people that, if we took a moment right now, that we can think of people that we wish were here with us. People that we know from from work or school or wherever that are so broken and desperate and in need of healing. We desire that. So how... Here's our question, how is the city shaken? What is it, is it that leads to that? How does this circumstance come about? And how can we follow in the footsteps of those by the road to usher in and allow God to do the same kind of work here? Here's what stood out to me this week. Jesus is on the donkey. He's riding up to the city. The crowds come with him. They must have run ahead kind of at the last minute, but they were coming from the same direction as him. And they stop at the city gates. Here's what's important. Let me say it one more time. Right? So we all get the directions. Jerusalem's this way. Jesus is traveling. The crowds travel with him. They run ahead of him to prepare to enter him into the city, but they stop at the city gates and they turn and they look back at Jesus and they praise him and they worship him. Again, not all of them even knew exactly what most of them didn't know who Jesus was. None of them knew exactly what was going on. None of them knew that the ultimate sacrifice was about to be paid, that no longer the blood of of bulls and goats and calves, none of them knew that. Many of them didn't even understand fully that he was the Messiah or any, but they turned and they worshiped him. With their backs to the city, at least theologically, right? I don't have pictures. But in spirit, their backs were to the city and their eyes were on Jesus. And their worship of him, their praise of him, however imperfect, however, sh- however short their understanding fell, their worship of him shook the city. They didn't have to interact. 
They didn't run into the city and say, hey, you guys got to get out here. Jesus is coming. We need to worship him. They didn't run into the city and say, what are you doing? Don't you get it? He's coming. He's the Messiah. He's the prophet. Why are you still in your homes? They didn't run into the city and raise any kind of commotion. No. They got to the city and they turned around and they just looked at Jesus. And I really believe, church, that there's a lot that we can learn from that. Because we have this desire to see our cities shaken. We look out at our broken world and say, this is not working. The path that you're going on and you're just marching straight down this path that leads to to pain and darkness and loneliness and and." We want to change that. We want to shake that up to, to cause some sort of stirring to wake people up to see what is happening in their lives. People that are looking for love and companionship and doing it in the wrong ways and in the wrong places. And we see that they are going to just pile loneliness and, and doubt and pain on themselves. We want to see that shaken But so often what the church does, and I'm really glad that I haven't been here very long because I can say these sorts of things and you know that I'm not talking about anyone in particular. I'm not talking, this isn't my analysis of new beginnings. This is just the church. This is what we fall into. Okay. But so often we look at a world that needs to be shaken and we try to go do it ourselves. We try to accomplish that by by just putting our words out into the city. But that's not, that's not what we see here. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a time for evangelism. I'm not saying that there's not a time for, for ministries on the streets. Right? This isn't a message about evangelism. This is a message about worship. And before we do those things which are important, they're biblical. Jesus sent out the disciples and said, go, and, and, and obviously there's, there's chapter upon chapter in the New Testament. Paul travels all over, all over Europe and Asia and just shows up places and starts talking in the marketplaces. Right? There's a time for that, but there's also a time for this. And that timing is really important because that's his timing. And we need to pay really close attention to what season we're in. And what I believe is this, that there's a lot of times when the church is in a Palm Sunday season and we act like we're in a missionary season. We act like we're in a go into the marketplace and just start preaching season. This comes first. The worship comes first first. That we wish we could get our world to be as interested and as shaken about Jesus as these people did in Jerusalem on this day. We desire that. But the way that that came about for them, and what I believe is the way it will come about for us, is not what we need to do first is certain times and certain places, take our eyes off of the city 
for a few moments and fix our eyes on him. You will draw a lot more people to church by showing them how much peace you have throughout the uncertainty in your life than by telling them how much they should pray when there's uncertainty in theirs. That if you lose your job at the same time as a friend of yours and you rest in his peace and they see that, when you fix your eyes on Christ and just following him the way you're meant to follow him, you're going to stir somebody up because they don't have the same peace in that situation as you. They don't have, they see the comfort in your eyes and that, it shifts something in them because they don't believe that should be possible. Then after that, that's when we preach, that's when we share, that's when we invite. And hey, I believe it all comes from a good place. Right? We know we're called to serve. We know we're called to work. We want to reach and help and serve our world. And we just run off to do it. <laughs> but we need to worship as well. We need to fix our eyes on him first. And the rest will come. The rest will come. So I want to give you permission, especially over the next few weeks as we kind of make this journey together as a church, but also in your life in general, to take time just to worship, to take time just to praise him first, to build your foundation of faith. That's right. To build your foundation of faith, to build your foundation of worship, to build your understanding of who he is and what he wants to do in your life. Sometimes because we have things we need to work on first, and other times just because that is what we need to do. We seek him first, we praise him first, and allow him to prepare the hearts of those who will come. I pray that you will go worshiping today, whatever that looks like for you, musical or otherwise, remembering who he is, remembering his power, being open to whatever he would have you do. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we often can get so antsy. There's so much to do. There's so much hurt around us. We want to help. We want to change it. We want to see people stop hurting themselves and we really want to see them stop hurting others. But Lord, may we be content on some days and in some moments just to worship. Help us to know that it's not our responsibility that we are not the one in charge. That our responsibility is to be faithful to you. May we have the strength to trust you and trust your timing. And in those moments, Lord, may we be willing to leave the worries and the people behind us 
for a moment to turn our face to you, to proclaim who you are to the best of our understanding. And then when the city is shaken, and Lord, we pray a shaking over Loudon. We pray a shaking over Concord and Pembroke and all of the other towns that I'm going to forget the names of because I don't live here yet. Oh Lord, we pray a shaking. We pray that you prepare the hearts of many for what you want to do. And may we, your people, be faithful to praise and may we be ready to answer when the questions come and we are confident that they will. Who is this that gives us hope? Who is this that gives us peace? Who is this who can make such a difference? And we can turn and say our Savior and Messiah, Jesus Christ, who forgives us and who has, who has offered his forgiveness to you, would you accept it and would you accept his peace? May we walk in your spirit that we know which day is which, which minute, which hour. May we be your people. May our worship, may our prayer change our world. May we announce the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.